Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast, where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing good, Ed. Hope you are. I am doing well. It has been a uh, a good uh, post-Memorial Day week so far. Good. And uh, I, I will say that as I thought about the, tonight's episode... I remember this bumper sticker that I used to see amidst other bumper stickers of leftist uh, persuasion on cars that said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And that's kind of how I feel right now. If, if someone, if a conservative especially, is not outraged, they're really not looking at what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, there's a lot to be outraged about. And just to start it, i got to say that uh, you sent a clip the other day about somebody is a very short clip from someone that was on the Tucker Carlson show who talked about some experiment in which scalp portions from aborted babies was grafted onto lab rats. And quite frankly, I thought, well, that's just got to be crazy. That's just, you know, some wackadoo conspiracy theory. So I started researching it and it's, it's not only accurate, it's very true and it's very uh, disturbing. I don't have any other words for it. It's just, it's it's, just outrageous. It really is. It, it, it's the kind of thing that makes you sick to your stomach, keep you up at night. And one of the uh, primary sources that I, I've read about on this is from an organization called the Center for Medical Progress. Um, their director or executive director, David DeLayden, has testified before the Pennsylvania State Legislature. They put out a video about it. I have a short clip here of that. The University of Pittsburgh is a hub for some of the most barbaric experiments carried out on late-term aborted human infants. Experiments funded by the United States government. At the same time, the university sponsors the local Planned Parenthood abortion business in what looks like an illegal quid pro quo for fetal body parts. This photo from an experiment published by Pitt scientists in 2020 shows the scalps of five-month-old aborted babies grafted onto the backs of lab rats growing the aborted baby's hair on the rodents. The Pittsburgh scientists describe these aborted baby scalps as full thickness human fetal skin cut from the heads and backs of the babies, then processed via removal of excess fat underneath the baby skin before stitching it onto the rats. How was this paid for? With a nearly half a million dollar research grant from Dr. Anthony Fauci's NIAID office at the NIH. It gets worse. Oh, yeah, it does get worse. And I, I cut it off there. It's about a five minute video. Uh, I, I urge any of our listeners to go watch that. There, there are uh, photographs, there are uh, citations to scientific papers. And this isn't the only source. I, I found articles about it in the Christian Post, the Catholic Register, uh, a number of different publications. And it's, uh, you know, I, I tried to actually reach out to David DeLayden mm-hmm. and talk with him. I did not get a response from him yet. Uh, but just to, to get more information about this, you know, I'm sure that there was some scientific justification for it. It doesn't mitigate the um, absolutely yeah. horrendous nature of this. Yeah. yeah, it seemed to me that the justification was that they do that in order to test um, how certain, I guess, for lack of a better word, mechanisms of disease affect the human body because they can't test on humans. And I get that, but it is beyond the pale. Um, I mean, it's just, I just, words fail me, as I told you the other day, words fail me. 
And lest anyone think that this is just some clump of cells out there or fetal stem cell tissue, these are five-month-old fetuses. They're formed and pieces are removed to conduct the experimentation with. And, and in some instances, uh, it's my understanding that babies are born alive so that they can harvest livers and other organs. Um, rather than aborting them, I guess, in utero, they cause them to be born and then kill them. Uh, and then take and the parts. Yeah, after having having uh, harvested their organs, and that is uh, bad Horrible. stuff. Who would have ever thought that in the United States of America in 2021 that stuff would be going on, paid for with your tax dollars? Well, that's right. And there also there's this cycle that goes on, which I've read about several places. They receive federal dollars, and then they give grants to. Uh, Planned Parenthood, and they create, that's their source, so they create this cycle that goes between federal dollars, in this case it was the University of Pittsburgh, but I couldn't say it's not occurring at any other institution, mm -hmm. and Planned Parenthood, or other abortion providers. And it's it's the National Institute for Allergy and uh, Infectious Diseases, I think, that provides the, the monies for the grants, correct? That's right. And that is Dr. Fauci. That's right. And, and or, you know, I, I'm not saying that he specifically approved this or or anything. Right. I'm saying just knowing about this now is a horrible situation. It is. Where's Jesse Helms when we need him? And, and, and you know, to go back to what you said a moment ago, who would have thought this country would come to this? You know, it hasn't been that long since a president of the United States stood up and said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Don't see many people on the left side of the aisle taking that position now. Yeah, the rare has been forgotten. And, and that's the thing is, is the pro-abortion forces, I refuse to call them pro-choice, the pro-abortion forces are so strident and so, I don't even know the word, so um, determined that babies should die. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, the unknown um, by the large majority of the voting public because it's ignored by the mainstream media, is that the majority of children aborted are minorities. And, and it's, it's a catastrophe. The word pandemic doesn't begin to cover what has happened in our country since January the 22nd, 1973. Well, and in fact, the founder of Planned Parenthood was a, was a pretty racist person. Right. And she saw the use of abortion to, to limit minority communities. That's right. And and the 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 uh, I mean, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg ha has had written uh, in much the same way um, about eliminating you know children who were somehow less than, uh, and and it's it's beyond the the pale. And it's not even close. It's not in the same zip code as the pale. No. No, no, that's the first thing to be outraged about tonight. <laughs> yeah, so you know, anyone who's listening to this, if you wanna, if you wanna know more about it, you know, contact us. You can just Google it, and you can find dozens of sources that come up right away. Yeah, and and we'll have more on it because we're gonna stay on top of it. The other thing we can be outraged about are all these emails that have come out today uh, from to or about Dr. Fauci. And I know you are following that far more closely. So tell us something about that. But what you've sent me is just incredible. Well, they, um, they were released pursuant to a FOIA request 
that I think may have been done by the New York Post based upon that article that I, um, an article I found this afternoon when I sent you the, the link to all of the emails, but I'm not sure that the New York Post necessarily is the one, but I think they are. And it is Dr. Fauci's government email for the, during the pandemic. And it's fascinating. Um, he's basically lied and lied and lied about masks and about um, whether or not uh, folks who had COVID have natural immunity and thus don't need to have the vaccine. He's um, covered up the notion that the vaccine is engineered in such a way that it seemed apparent to investigators early on that um, it was um, caused by, by people, that, that it's a man-made virus um, and, and not a natural uh, evolution of a virus. It's, you know, he, there, there are instances where he ignores Republican members of Congress when they send him emails about um, with questions, um, but he's Johnny on the spot responding to Morgan Fairchild uh, and eliciting her help in getting quote getting the word out about about um, uh, how to how to respond and what to do as a citizen. Um, One of the emails to, to your point just then was an explanation. This is from March 11th of 2020 that says this is how COVID-19 could have been created in a lab. And, and we can't the, say the Betts guy. Is that the one from the Betts, yeah. Dr. Betts? Yeah. Now, I did see this afternoon uh, some somebody suggested that they had contacted Betts and and uh, he said he didn't send that email. But. Whoever made that up was a, um, a, a skilled scientist uh, because the language and so forth would, was, was such that um, I don't think a layperson could have made that up. So I'm not sure the, the, the whys and wherefores of that. But Dr. Pitts is at the University of Pennsylvania. So uh, you know, he is not some uh, uh, jackleg uh, with an opinion. And then there was another. Uh, email uh, in a similar vein from a practicing dermatologist of all things in in New York, who sent Dr. Fauci an email very early on as well and said, you know, my partners and I are kicking this around, and this is what we think with regard to uh, uh, the um, uh, the lockdown and and so forth, and was you know just just ignored, just uh-huh. ignored. And, and um, we're not saying COVID was created in a lab intentionally. That's right. We don't have that information. You could go back and listen to our episode last week where we talked about how the momentum has changed recently and there are all these reports. And now the president's going to conduct an investigate or have the intelligence community redouble their efforts, the way he put it, right. to figure it out. And they're never going to figure it out. Our point is that Fauci was given information which he pretty much ignored. He downplayed publicly or he told the exact opposite to the public and the members of Congress. That's right. And we're not even saying that he should have responded to all these emails because apparently a lot of people had his 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 email address. And clearly he was a very busy man. But it, it's interesting that he responds to the ones who are towing the party line, Morgan Fairchild, some Chinese government officials, uh, things like that. But he doesn't and, respond. And, uh, the guy at Facebook. That's right. Mark Zuckerberg. He doesn't yes. respond to. Uh, these uh, other scientists who express uh, certain opinions that that don't toe the party line, and he just ignores those, and that's it's 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 a pattern of that, that that's problematic. And, and you know, if if Dr. Fauci had said, "We don't know," 
uh, we don't, you know, this is novel and, and we're sort of flying by the seat of our pants here and we're playing catch up. Um, and I, I, he wouldn't be facing this, this, this storm of criticism because it, it does, it, it reeks of cover up. It may not be one, but it, it, it begs the question of was there a cover up? And, and if so, who did it and why? It's, well, it it's, particularly looks bad when you combine that with the information we discussed last week that right. uh, money had flowed from NAIAD to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He had been cited in papers before, and then he essentially washed his hands and said, well, we're not going to talk about that. That can't be true. That's right. So he, he had a motive not to talk about it. Right. And then all the media jumped on and, and deemed it debunked. And 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 foolish, um, you know, almost semi-literate conspiracy theory it just refused to to allow anyone to discuss it. And Facebook and Twitter were kicking folks off who merely mentioned that it could have been created in a lab and perhaps didn't didn't uh, come about through natural evolution. And it was engineered by human beings. And are, are they going to get apologies from Facebook or Twitter? It's just bizarre. To that point, I have a sound clip from John Carl. Uh, he works for ABC News. He was a White House correspondent. I guess he still is a White House correspondent. He talked over the week weekend about why the media didn't take this uh, more seriously. Listen to this. Yes, I think a lot of people have egg on their face. This was an idea uh, that, that was first put forward by Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, Donald Trump. And look, some things may be true even if Donald Trump said them. I don't know what else to say. He says some things may be true, even if Donald Trump said them. Yeah, that, that sort of encapsulates. That, that's the mainstream media's approach right there. The mainstream media is the PR firm of the Democrat Party. And it's pretty unfortunate, 14 months after the pandemic started or, or, or thereabouts, that now they want to take a look at it. And only a few do. I mean, as, as, I, as best I can tell, this is not getting a lot of traction in the mainstream media. Yeah, well... We'll see where it goes. Uh, you know, I think it's getting more traction than it was, you know, a few months ago. Absolutely. And thank God for the social media because that's the only way we know about it. So that's our second thing to be outraged about today. But there's got to be something else good, good going on. What else do you think? Um, in terms of outrage, well, um, the president's speech yesterday in Tulsa um, seemed to be a uh, – controversial one and angered a great deal of people. It also made a, a good fair number of people uh, happy, I suppose, where he uh, spoke at the 100th anniversary of a, um, a race massacre in Tulsa and seemed to be, um, was accused of, of furthering uh, the divide between left and right, white and black that currently exists in this country. I personally didn't watch it, so I, I'll refrain from commenting. I did see that uh, as he began his speech, he noticed two little girls, you know, four, five, six years old, in the audience in the, in the front row, and he stopped and descended the podium to go over and speak privately with them and then go back and finish his speech. And after his statement last week about the little girl who was sitting there uh, and he commented that she had her legs crossed and looked like a 19-year-old. Uh, that was probably not something that Joe should have done. He's got some issues um, that uh, somebody needs to get a handle on because it makes it look like it's much more than just a sort of a old, doddering old fool. 
Well, that's when he wanders off script. That's right. Yeah. I think essentially the, uh, the the staff behind him, they script what he's going to say. You know, I, I used to think that um, that Biden wouldn't last long in office, and he still might not because of his age and health issues and, and you know, mental decline, I think. But uh, I don't think that there's going to be a push to replace him like I once did, because I think that the left sees him as the appropriate front person. Because he can come off as a mainstream, there's Uncle Joe, he's just the moderate guy that he was 45 years ago in the Senate, and all the while, they push more and more radical policies. That's exactly right. And they're getting the policies they want without, you know, their guy Bernie um, being in the White House. Uh, So they kind of have it the best of both worlds. They've pushed out a budget proposal, which is $6 trillion, I think, on top of however many trillions have already been spent on COVID relief and trillions that are under consideration on infrastructure. Uh, it would be um, just a, a um, disaster in so many ways for our country uh, if that were to pass. And I, I, um, I saw, uh, I don't know if we talked about this last week or not. If we did, stop me and we can cut this out. But uh, back in the 60s, there was a plan or a, a theory established by two, I think they were sociologists that actually, Cloward and Piven. Did we talk about that? Yeah. Um, they, they, um, they were husband and wife, actually. Uh, I don't know which one was Cloward and which one was Piven, but they proposed a theory that said if government would overload the welfare system, and at the time the welfare system was more state than it is now, um, that chaos would ensue and that the government could take advantage of that chaos to further strengthen the federal uh, welfare state and, and ultimately uh, implement socialism um, and, and communism through uh, the government strength that was established due to the chaos or in response to the chaos. And that is exactly, in my opinion, what this proposed budget uh, would do. And, and I, I've got to think that, there, that at least somebody has the idea that that's a good thing. No, I think you're right. Now, you know, before we get too far from the Tulsa speech, I didn't watch it, but I read a lot about it, a lot of excerpts from it. And I, and, and I don't criticize Biden for going to Tulsa no. and bringing attention to an, a significant historical event, which probably has never gotten this much attention. Which before. has been covered up, and that's just as wrong when it's covered up by those on the right as when things are covered up by those on the left. It's wrong. That's right. You know, I, I don't like the way he's using it to try to push other policies, which would be bad for everyone involved. As well as our country. I also don't like the idea that we have to tear down this country so that we can build it back into something else. That's right. I mean, it it was entirely appropriate for the president of the United States to go to the 100th uh, anniversary, if you will, of of that event um, and to to talk about it. I I think you're absolutely right. I I just think the, the way he went about it and what he has said is, as you said, divisive and and not uh, not in the best interest of anyone, to be honest. But to the Cloward and Biven theory that you discussed, yeah, I can certainly see that. Uh, you know, the left is is pushing hard, and they're pushing well, again uh, for uh, an end to the um, filibuster. Um, 
and because uh, I think they realize that um, they've got a short window here in which to get done that which they want to get done because they fear or recognize that generally speaking the minority party uh, does better uh, does well or regains some strength and some momentum and some seats in the Congress in the, in the first off-year election of a president's term. Historically, um, that happens right. pretty much every time, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat who's in the White House, the other party picks up seats in the House. Yeah, and I, I, I think maybe 2002 was the only time, at least in the last 50, 60 years, that it's happened. Uh, it hasn't happened. Um, and, and so if, if that's the case, you know, they've got 50 in the Senate plus Kamala Harris's tiebreaker vote. Um, and they're what four seats up in the house, so they I guess they they worry that they could lose control of both houses of Congress, which put the squelch on a lot of of their uh, agenda. But I think that all of these policies, whether it's HR one that we talked about before, uh, the Corrupt Politicians Act, whether it's the budget bills, it's all designed to to bring more power to the federal government at the expense of the states and the localities. That's right. And that is that clearly is not the intent of the, the U.S. Constitution. No, the framers, the framers believed if if individuals could do it, then there was no need for any government to do it. If an individual could not do it, then the lowest level government that could is the one to do it, whatever it may be. And, you, you know, the locals did what they could do. And if they couldn't do it, then the states did it. If the states couldn't do it, then uh, the federal government. And then you had to have a, an express provision in the Constitution that provided the federal government that power. Of course, with, you know, the, the way our courts read um, the Necessary and Proper Clause and the Interstate, and Com- uh, Interstate Commerce Clause, the federal government can do whatever it wants to Yeah. And we'll be talking more as we get into some future episodes about each of those provisions in the Constitution. But, you know, to to kind of summarize it, if I could, is that power that's not specifically granted to the federal government is reserved to the states and to the people. That amendment is often neglected. It is. It is forgotten. It's the forgotten amendment now. But that is part of the Constitution. With the same force as. The First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. I mean, it's there, but... You skip the Third Amendment. It's still very important. But I didn't want to recite them all, you know. I understand. So, you know, one thing, uh, one other thing that's coming up uh, before we're back is the 77th anniversary of D-Day coming up over the next week. Momentous history. Absolutely. A a world-changing event. And I actually have a little announcement from NBC News. This is how it was first broke to the American people. This is Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. June 6, 1944. Allied troops in one of the largest amphibious landings anywhere hit the beaches at Normandy for the final push across Europe. Fortress Europe had uh, its death warrant signed on that date, if not before. The, the war wasn't over, but it was no, a matter it was of time. Far that... from over. Uh, in fact, if you go back and look, uh, German industry even after D-Day, but in, 19, in, in 1944. 
was at the height of its production. Um, so the bombing campaign, while it did a lot of good things, and it certainly hindered the German uh, war-making machine, it, it didn't it didn't stop it. Um, and the Germans were, uh, as you know, it, uh, they were uh, pretty much out in front of the Allies in their scientific ex- uh, activities, with the exception of nuclear power. I mean, they had rockets, they had jet aircraft, they had um, synthetic gasoline. Um, they were they were really at the forefront of some some advance, some technological advances that the Allied nations were not, with the exception of of um, the nuclear program. And that's probably because a good portion of those physicists and um, engineers and so forth had been uh, either German or Austrian or within some country that was conquered by um, by the Nazis, or, and they got out. Um, so uh, we we're fortunate in that regard as well. But um, and, and many of those scientists were Jewish. That's right. And they left for that reason. Einstein being a perfect example. Very good example. Well, I, I was just going to say in terms of industrial capacity, it is remarkable, though, by 1943-44 and into 45, how American industry had changed. And I mentioned a moment ago that I'd recently finished Twilight of the Gods, which is about the war in the Pacific. But one of the things that stood out there was the production of B-29s. And they were producing at such a rate that if the B-29 broke down somewhere with even a minor maintenance issue, they just pushed it aside because they had so many flooding the theater of war that they just didn't have time to even bother fixing them. That's right. Ian Toll has a really good i know he's done two of the three that he's going to do i don't know if he's done the third one yet um he may have just the third one may have just come out but that's a fantastic story of the the united states war mainly uh in the pacific theater during world war ii and um rick atkinson is a two-time pulitzer prize winner has done a trilogy uh on uh the u.s army in world war ii um and uh he in his third volume called uh, The Guns at Last Light, has a portion dedicated to American industry and provides just anecdotes and statistics of what this country was producing uh, by 1943-44 in terms of tanks and um, aircraft and then the the proximity fuse on uh, was originally placed on artillery shells or bombs and artillery shells and the difference that made, um, particularly in Europe, um, as the Americans and the British and the Canadians uh, broke out from the Normandy beachhead in the summer of '44 um, and began their push towards the Rhine and, and into the heart of Germany, and it was really um, uh, it was a factor of two things or, or several things. First, industry produced those Sherman tanks like there was no tomorrow. The Sherman tank was inferior in most every way to the Germans, but we had so many of them and we could keep them running. Patton in particular had come up with the Red Ball Express as a way to keep gasoline in particular and ammunition to his army because there was a famous, and if you've seen the movie, you've seen it where they run out of gas and they have to stop. You know, an army without gas is basically a defeated army. I mean, he wasn't defeated, but it wasn't a good thing there for a while. And then, um, the uh, you know the the planes as you said just you know part of the reason we had air supremacy was we had the better planes but 
we also had so many of them. And then the Germans, when they started producing the jets, you know, if they could have produced enough of them, they could have regained air supremacy, but they couldn't. With that old saw, Ed, you'll remember it from, uh, I don't remember who said it, but some, some military theorists said that amateurs talk about strategy and tactics and professionals talk about logistics, um, which kind of gets back to Napoleon's and army travels on its stomach. You know, the Germans were using horse-drawn artillery and things like that, even even as late as, as the end of the war um, and throughout. And, you know, we had General Motors and Chrysler and companies like that. It is an amazing story. And while we have just celebrated Memorial Day and, and the, the troops who fought and died for this country, we also remember those who lived and, and those of the greatest generation who fought across Europe starting on D-Day. That's right. And they're dying at, you know, tremendous numbers. And they're, you know, the World War II generation will, in the not-too-distant future, be gone. I actually have a great-uncle who um, was featured on ABC News, I guess it was two years ago, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Oh, wow. He was, he was part of the troops and that uh, came ashore that day. And he and five or six other veterans were... Uh, went back over there as, as to uh, to all of the 75th anniversary ceremonies. Really touching. Here's a clip of that. Our series returned to Normandy. This week, we mark the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the day that changed the course of World War II. We have traveled this country in the weeks leading up to the anniversary to meet many of the World War II veterans who are going back. They are our fathers, our grandfathers, and true to form, they are modest about what they did. You're about to hear their descriptions of that day. They remember it like it was yesterday, and they hope their country will remember, too. Harold McMurrin, New Market, Alabama. People say, how did you get off that boat and go in on the beach? There was a job had to be done. Somebody had to do it. We did it. Really amazing story. So anything else you got for tonight? Well, I noticed that today is the first Major League Baseball recognized Lou Gehrig Day. Um, today mm -hmm. is the 80th anniversary of his uh, of his death in uh, 1941. Um, and it is the also the anniversary, the, the game where he took himself out of the lineup and broke his streak uh, exactly two years earlier. Uh, in 1939. So today, um, Major League Baseball celebrates its first Lou Gehrig date. I don't know what exactly they're going to do. Yeah, that's always a... Um, Lou Gehrig is a fascinating individual. Um, is this going to be an annual event? Yeah, I, as I understand that it, it will. And I think there's another one. I don't remember who that's going to honor. So that there'll be three of those days. There's, You know, we've had the Jackie Robinson Day for 10, 12, 15 years now on April 15th to commemorate uh, the first game he played as a, an African-American in Major League Baseball, and then Lou Gehrig Day, and then there's another one. Maybe Hank Aaron. I can't remember who that honors. What's on your radar for the next week? Well, um, I guess I'd start with the uh, with the Fauci emails. Um, it seems to be death by a thousand cuts, and so I think they're going to continue to trickle out in uh, fits and starts. Um, and those will be interesting to follow. I think um, the uh, the COVID story in and of itself, um, you know, I've seen several states uh, who have gone now a couple of days with with no deaths, um, and several states have gone 
they're into the low single digits for hospitalizations. I think it was Texas I saw yesterday had four people in the hospital, but it may not have been Texas. It may have been someone else, another state. But I think that's interesting. Um, the uh, uh, the hockey game the other night in Raleigh, I'm not a hockey fan, and, uh, but they had a full house. First time uh, there's been a full house in an athletic event in this uh, in this state in February or early March of 2020. Um, NCAA baseball starts on Friday, um, and uh, there's a regional here, uh, and that'll be 100% capacity. And last I heard, they had maybe 100 or so tickets left to sell to sell out. My, my kids are going, and um, folks around here are looking forward to it. Um, but uh, that's interesting to me. And uh, and then and we didn't we didn't really touch on it, but uh, the news that broke this morning with regard to the I guess it's the largest uh, Iranian warship uh, caught on fire and sank to, today. Um, and uh, and then soon thereafter, the largest Iranian oil refinery uh, caught on fire as well. And so I'm looking at, at those stories to see how they develop and there are theories as to who and why and, and so forth. I, I think that'll be uh, an interesting, if not fascinating, story to follow. You never know what's going to happen in the Middle East. That can change plans in a moment. Absolutely. But, you know, those two incidences aren't the first. I think there have been several weird things happening with Iranian military and industrial targets. Over a period of months. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's 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 more than two or three. Um, and, Coincidence? Uh, Maybe not. Yeah. Um, the other thing I noticed, and it was in the – I saw on the Internet, I, I don't know what – that it got any play whatsoever in the mainstream media. But uh, as you, you you know, and our listeners will recall, the Trump administration changed our embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Um, that was one of his campaign promises, and, and he did that. And but, there was, but, you know, let me just say that it wasn't just a campaign promise. Moving the American embassy to Jerusalem was American policy. That's Congress right. had declared that, I think, in 1994. Right. I may have the year wrong, but I think it was 94. Every president talked about doing it. Both and Republican every pres- and Democrat. That's right. And everyone found a reason not to do it until until President Trump did it. Exactly right. And there had been a consulate in Jerusalem before that. And, of course, when we opened the embassy, you don't need a consulate in the, in the same city where you have an embassy. So it was closed. The Biden administration this week reopened the consulate in Jerusalem, and it's a, quote, consulate to the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is, I guess, uh, one step below saying we have an embassy and an ambassador to the Palestinian Authority, uh, which I, I thought was was interesting. And then, um, and we didn't talk about this, uh, and I haven't kept up with the story, but uh, sometime, maybe Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday morning in this country, um, the Israeli parliamentary or parliamentary coalition bogged down, and it looked like the Prime Minister Netanyahu was going to be ousted. And I honestly don't know whether he actually was ousted or not or where that stands, but that'll be interesting as well. I don't think there's been a vote yet. Okay. And supposedly there was a new coalition, but nothing has happened yet. Okay. So... What about you? Yeah. What's on your radar? Well, I'll just name a couple of things. One is this Texas voting bill and uh, the um, 
the walkout that occurred in the Texas legislature the other day. Uh, the Republicans had the votes to pass a new bill to uh, deal with voting. We've talked about what well, we started this uh, this podcast series talking about the Georgia voting law. Uh, we haven't gone in depth on the Texas one, but I understand there are a number of similarities there. Uh, but more to the point, the Constitution says that the General Assembly or the legislature in a state has the authority to determine voting laws, despite the Democrats trying to pull it all up to Washington. So when this bill was getting close to passage in Texas, some text message goes out around all the uh, Texas Democrats. They take your keys and get out of here. So they denied the quorum that was necessary to actually bring it to a vote. Uh, the governor of Texas says he's going to dock their pay or withhold money. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go, so I'm watching that. I think that'll be interesting. The other thing is infrastructure. Senator Capito from West Virginia met today with the president. She is the first Republican senator to get a private meeting with the president, not even the uh, uh, the majority or minority leader. Uh, senator McConnell has gotten that, and, and she seems to be trying to negotiate some type of infrastructure bill. The one that the Biden administration put forward was about $2 trillion and included things which did not meet the traditional definition of infrastructure. And Republicans have said they won't vote for that. I think they've counterproposed with $600 billion and then it went up to maybe $800 billion. So I don't know where it's going now, but I think it's entirely possible we'll see the government spend a trillion dollars between now and the next time we meet. Absolutely. Scary stuff. Ah, it's just money. That's right. They print it all day, 24-7. Yeah, better print some more. <laughs> Don't worry about inflation. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review. Mm-hmm.